So today is our 99th episode. 99. Wow. Wow. Damn. And missed it. Yeah. What? I was aiming for 100. <laughs> missed it by one. Close. Number 100 will be the sequel to this one. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. The movie. Yeah, the movie. Yeah, true. We have someone with us today. Is it our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? I'm just kidding. Stephen, who do we have with us today? <laughs> we have back on the cast the one, the only scott hendricks and he was here for our hades podcast it was was that the only one we've had scott here for yeah <laughs> i feel like he's one of our most frequent visitors no maybe huh. it's just no <laughs> you just see me a handful <laughs> times outside of this <laughs> and those times i cherish or we're not quite approaching our two-year anniversary we're still several months away from that that's true but the other crazy thing about this episode is it is both technically and not technically our first book episode mm. we did only one other book episode which means a new color i get to use a new color Ooh, yeah what color is it gonna be pink Oh. It's like a salmon. It's a very agreeable shade. It's yeah. a salmon pink. I like that. That uh, was our book episode color, but you know, when we started this podcast, we, <laughs> we were like, we're gonna, you know, do books sometimes. So Eventually. here we are. Yeah. <laughs> episode ninety nine <laughs> episodes later. <laughs> we just got it right in under the hundred, the sentence. But we broke down the original Watchmen graphic novel, which was technically a book podcast. But when I made that, I used like the Watchmen colors. I did like a one-off color just for that one. So this is technically like our first like actual book. Cool. So thanks for being here. Yeah. I'm excited to talk to you. You got this. a very avid reader here in me. Do you read avidly? No. Okay. <laughs> Not as much as I would like to. Is avidly a word? I don't know. That's a great question. Yeah. If we were I readers, would assume, I would if we so. were all more avid readers, we'd probably know. <laughs> it is a word, Gabe. I think so. An adverb to describe another word. I would like to think of myself as someone who reads avidly. I would like to think of myself as a lot of things that I'm not. You know what I mean? When was the last time you read a book before this one? Uh, it's been a sh- it's been a, a minute. We've been very busy here. We're busy. Do you people. read at least three to four books a year? Uh, not currently. No. In fact, rereading Dune. Have you ever done that? Yeah, I oh, used okay. to in my youth. We'll say. I know some readers that read like a book a week. Oh yeah, like 52 books a year. Yeah, they'll outlive us all. It's yeah. crazy. In the mind palace. Mm. Yeah. Well, some say the mind feeds the body, Ooh. or the body listens to the mind. Mm. That might be some Modi hey, Gabe. wisdom. Gabe. <laughs> Sorry. Gabe. I'll stop. I'm a little excited. Oh, happy Dune week, everybody. Yeah. What book are we doing today? <laughs> what are we doing today, Scott? <laughs> Dune? I think I was probably here for Dune. <laughs> the book Dune. The 1965 classic. Frank Herbert, written. Mm-hmm. Still greatest selling book of all time right or yeah best-selling science fiction novel it's said to be i'm unsure if it's actually factual because statistics around book sales are always like kind of strange mm. so yeah we're doing dune today we're all excited because not only is this book amazing and there's so much to talk about but we're doing this in preparation for the new film adaptation of the book that's coming out in just a couple days by my current favorite director, Denis Villeneuve. Villeneuve. Villeneuve? It's I can't even pronounce his last name, but I love him. French-Canadian? He's adapting this book, and the movie that's coming out is actually going to be just kind of the first half of the book that yeah, we're about to discuss. Yeah, part one of two, yeah. as mm-hmm. it's been come to be known as. Where did you first read Dune, Scott? On my couch in my living room. <laughs> <laughs> okay, when? About about a year and a half ago. Was the first oh, that time. was the first time? The first time I'd read it. I had started it. It was a book in school that I was going to read in high school. And then the teacher pivoted. So oh, that's a I shame. did not end up reading it. That's how I came to know Dune was in high school. They yeah. gave you a selection in the English course to choose from. And I obviously, as a young man, gravitated towards the science fiction. And that's where... I guess Dune was one of the first books along with like Ender's Game that created my love for that genre. Mm. And it was very influential, not just in my life, but in the history of literature and science fiction. Yeah. I mean, it fits into a lot of genres, but. Mm-hmm. The first time I ever heard of Dune was in a blockbuster. What's that? 
<laughs> Can you explain what Blockbuster is <laughs> for our younger audience? That's a good joke. I remember seeing the cover of David Lynch's film adaptation, the 1984 adaptation, going, what the heck, that looks really cheesy. And uh, I never watched it because it just looked bad from the cover art of the film, of the movie in Blockbuster. Mm. And there's other pop culture references that would pop up every now and then. I remember Dan Cook had this stand-up skit where he talked about like Nestle Nesquik then stirring the chocolate into your your drink and he would like joke about how the movie Dune is in your chocolatey milk drink because the dust never actually got absorbed by the milk when you tried to stir it in no matter how much you stirred there's always chocolate dust left mm, it's true it's pretty funny. Interesting. I haven't thought about Dan Cook in a while either. Yeah. The chocolate must flow. <laughs> but I'm going to do like a brief summary and you guys can chime in if you want. But then I have a game for us. Whoa. I love games. Yeah. Love games. You're going to love it. Cool. You're going to like the way you play this it's game. pop quiz? I guarantee it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. No, I was going to say, as we already said, it's, it's one of the most influential literary science fiction series of all time and it's influenced so many other things from star trek to star wars even like a bunch of video games like warhammer or like based sort of off of this work and it's often cited as the best-selling science fiction book of all time and we already said it's published in 1965 and it's written by frank herbert and frank herbert was just such an interesting person and we'll cut some clips in throughout this podcast of him speaking about dune because dune isn't just about this book it's a series of books and it was intended by him to have all of these books read and understood to understand the concept of what he was trying to get across. We're just going to be breaking down the first book that he wrote, which is the most celebrated instead of just the series. But Frank Herbert was a bit of a futurist and an environmentalist, a bit, a large one. <laughs> and he was a writer and wrote for a lot of different people, newspaper. And then he wrote for a couple of politicians as well. And he learned a lot about sociopolitical aspects of life. And his intense curiosity is what he attributed his great knowledge to, just constantly asking questions and researching as much as he could. He spent five years creating the ecosystem of Dune. How Dune, which is this planet that we'll talk about in a second, works and operates and how the creatures on it live and coalesce and so forth. The book is also flooded with philosophy and religion on every page. There's so much philosophical talk. Every other paragraph has an intense amount of insight. And for those of you who thought that science fiction was some star-crazed person, sitting down and making up a whole bunch of stuff, that ain't the way it works, does it, sir? No, it is not the way it works. I mean, doesn't it relate, really? Don't you start on a base of contemporary understanding or historical understanding and then work out from there? We look at history, and we look at uh, anthropology. Well, a, a good reading for you is uh, the number of university courses that use Dune as a textbook. Anthropology, architecture, uh, political science, uh, economics... How did you learn about all of these things? You, you didn't study at the universities for 22 years, and you don't have five PhDs. I don't I have even know hand. if you've got a BS or an MA. <laughs> I have a hand which is capable of knocking on doors. <laughs> no, seriously, how, no, I, how I, did you... I mean, you really must be either one of the smartest men on earth or one of the most curious who finds out about things. I'm curious, extremely curious, and I became an investigative reporter very early on. An investigative reporter who didn't just react. I wanted to know, I wanted to dig... And uh, that's a wonderful resource. You're continually being educated. You know this. I'm not telling you anything new. But there's something about your imagination, your, the special vocabulary that you've created. It's what I think the literary critics call the leap of imagination. It goes beyond just step one to step two. Well, I've done many things. I have a very checkered career. I've looked for jobs that taught me things. I've been a speechwriter and researcher for a United States senator, for example. That's where I learned politics. I was a ghostwriter for S.I. Hayakawa, Sam Hayakawa. That's where I learned uh, semantics. Uh, one of the places I learned semantics, I already knew something about it. Um, I was a newspaper writer for years uh, with uh, an investigative reporter's nose. I'm, um, I I'm a believer in the high energy life. I just say we have to shift from non-renewable energy to renewable energy. And we have to start taking the steps now. We really do have to start taking those steps now. <coughs> this is what we're looking at. The federal government says we have 40 years, approximately, of fossil fuels. Now, let's say that their figure is accurate, give or take 10 years. 
that is not a significant figure until you start looking at the depletion, until you start looking at what happens when you're halfway there, what happens to the price of the remaining fossil fuel. We have the latitude to do enormous changes in this society. We have the energy resources to make these changes. However, these are not simple changes I'm talking about. No, they're not. <coughs> no, they're not really simple changes. Uh, <coughs> we're just going to have to bite the bullet on some things and say this is going to cost us. I say frequently that I do not want to be put in the position, I refuse to be put in the position of having to tell my grandchildren, and I have grandchildren, I'm sorry, there's no more world for you. We used it all up. Yeah, I've heard Frank Herbert... I almost just called him Frank, but that seemed a little too familiar. Mr. Herbert. I've heard, I've heard him <laughs> refer to his own work as philosophical fiction rather than just science fiction because of the yeah. way it's not only transcendent of genre, but also just like the core of it is philosophy, like you said. Yeah. I feel like every other page, while I was reading it again, especially, I came to realize that it is so just packed full of yeah. little bits of wisdom for every part of living. <laughs> Another thing he said was that he wanted to get across a message that was about government and politics and a lot of philosophical wisdom that we'll get into. Yeah. But the way that he could only get across that message was by making it entertaining. So the sci-fi element was sort of something that he created to make it enjoyable to tell the message that he wanted to tell. And he called it, because he's such a quirky guy, he's constantly making jokes but he called it science fiction for people that don't read science fiction. Mm -hmm. Nice. Yeah. And those that do as well. <laughs> but yeah, it's pretty accessible. I, th I mean, it's very heady. It's very wordy and dense, but you can take it on many different levels and layers. And that was something I also read out of, um, there's an afterword by his son, Brian, who eventually carried on the franchise in my copy of the book. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about how his father intended there to be so many levels to it so that no matter who you are, you can take something away from it for yourself. And then also, you know, with rereading it, pick out different things and mm -hmm. take what you need from it or what you can. From this point forward, go read Dune, come back, and resume the podcast. <laughs> this will be our official spoiler warning. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's interesting for me. It's uh, I'm not an avid reader by any means. I would love to be more of an avid reader. I'm about a, maybe a book a year, but uh, even then, most of it's nonfiction. So this was my foray back into fiction. Welcome back. Since high school, realistically. Mm. It's funny, the book to me, and I'm not a Dune person by any, I'm not deep into the Dune realm. I loved it, the book, and the movie looks fantastic and I can't wait to see it. I definitely felt like there were a lot of issues with it. Mm. Everything from pacing mm -hmm. to, uh, gosh, one of the things that bothered me the most throughout the book was the inner monologue. Mm. of every single character <laughs> to the point of you're reading it as essentially you have the ability to read every person's mind and to hear every single thought from every person got a little bit much for me. Mm -hmm. That was just two of the biggest gripes I had. Mm -hmm. But I mean, otherwise the world building, everything just, it drew me in once I got past a few of the first chapters. Yeah. The whole book kind of plays out a little bit like the hero's journey. I've heard that the second book actually deconstructs the hero's journey and is much less accessible. Less accessible. Yeah, much less accessible, which is interesting. But that kind of hero's journey arc does draw you in, and it does a lot to keep up the pacing. It didn't ever slow down for me, if that makes sense. Like, it, Well, tell Scott how you listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I listened to it on time and a half speed. I think I told you that. Nice. Because I pretty, was listening through an audible. That's pretty fast. Yeah. Uh, I blew through it in the past like <laughs> two and a half weeks. But even like the pacing of everything, it always kept me interested from chapter to chapter, even though I guess there's mm. no chapter denotations, but they were in the Audible book. Yeah, I can see what Scott's saying, though. And I know Frank Herbert had much trouble, especially for his time, selling this book to a publisher for that reason, mm -hmm. because it's very dense. And those parts of it for the omniscient perspective that it has in the kind of endless and not just endless but repetitive philosophizing they'll come back and like harp on a point you know over and over yeah turn a, a lot of people off when he was trying to sell it and he had to rework it a lot not just for himself as a perfectionist you know as an author yeah trying to hone his story but also editors were like you gotta like keep fixing this thing until it's perfect and eventually what he ended up with he he had developed something that is i would say also kept my attention the, the, i think the pacing worked well enough for me even as a reader who's typically slower 
before. Like I'll, I'll really take my time with a passage just to like make sure I'm fully digesting it. But yeah, it does like kind of have parts where it's a little slower, but I, I always feel like in Dune there is a reason mm-hmm. in the moment for whatever uh, Frank Herbert's trying to tell us, whether mm-hmm. it's just philosophizing or uh, something integral to the plot that you might miss. And he usually makes it uh, pretty intentional that he doesn't want you to miss something because he's like, here's what's really happening. Oh yeah, he makes it very clear. And his characters are like, the whole idea of these schemes that there's like, there's a scheme within a scheme within a scheme and right. everybody's, uh, since you're in everybody's head at any given moment, everything is very clear. But it does take a lot of space on the page for that to happen. So I can totally understand why why someone would uh, be put off by that, especially if you're not used to consuming that you know style of book. And there really, like we have said, aren't a lot of science fiction books like this in this style that have such a wide appeal because there wasn't ever really anything like this at the time. Frank Herbert isn't usually someone that's referred to as like one of the grandfathers of science fiction, Mm -hmm. but Dune, as it is one of the best-selling science fiction pieces of literature of all time, there's definitely something there that has caught on. Yeah. And kind kind of opened the door and paved the way for so many others, like you said, Stephen, with not just books, but, you know, film and television. Yeah. I also was watching a couple breakdowns of way bigger Dune fans than I am talking about how there's a lot of misconceptions surrounding Dune because of the Lynch film or the weird series adaptation that came out in the 2000s, early 2000s, that like a lot of people don't really, can't really understand it or see it for what it is. And I thought that that was really interesting as well. Because I, like I said, seeing that on the stand at Blockbuster going, wow, that looks really cheesy or weird, just not into it. And I was like into, you know, never ending story probably at the time. That's super cheesy as well. I mean, because of all the puppetry and stuff, but... I think that's interesting both. I'm going to go on a little 60-second rant here based on what you just said. Well, I think that's interesting what you said both on a style and a substance point of view. Yeah. Because Lynch's movie is pretty, it's like super campy as we've been watching clips over the last few days. And it it is like kind of, it's very bizarre for most people probably to see or even with reading to envision in their mind these strange things, not just the nomenclature of this world, which is also very hard to understand. Mm Mm-hmm. But also the substance, like you said, it can be misinterpreted. I mean, on on a very base level, this is like a messianic narrative. He's said to be a hero. But it's also interesting when you said earlier about the follow-up, I think it was, is it Dune Messiah? How he was basically, you could easily miss the point in the first novel, how he's, this is really a critique of the hero, of that messianic figure, which it evolves to be much more clear picture in the sequel in the next book, that it's a criticism on charismatic leaders, which I think you use that term. I had never really thought about it in such fine words earlier this week when you express it to me like that, but it totally makes sense. Looking back through the first book at all the points where it's shown that, you know, Paul, the main character, the messianic figure is really like a dangerous individual and especially with this amount of power that he has but it is you can like maybe not understand that when you're looking at it when you're reading it because you're like this is the hero of the story and it should be celebrated what he's doing but yeah frank herbert is quoted saying i wrote the dune saga because i had this idea that charismatic leaders ought to come with a warning label may be dangerous to your health (laughs) pretty funny yeah, apparently the protagonist, who's like the messiah, basically, thinking that he's doing what's right in this book, goes on to the choices that he makes while on this planet, basically being the savior of the native people there, goes on to affect the whole galaxy and ends up killing like billions of people in the galaxy. The jihad. <laughs> the jihad. Which <laughs> I did appreciate throughout the book. I appreciated once he got to the point of recognizing the paths he had to take that he struggled with the idea of if I have to take this path, what's the outcome, which I appreciated. And a lot of that you get from the inner monologue, which I critiqued earlier. But yeah, I I did appreciate the fact that at least he was considering the two separate paths or at least perceivable paths that we were given Mm. insight into Mm. that if he goes down this particular path, it's going to cost something. And that something is a lot of lives. Mm -hmm. So I appreciated that side of the whole story and then looking at obviously we're not talking too much about book two but understanding the breakdown in book two how it's less focused on the single person changing the course of the world and two yeah and the other coin of that is you know the masses that follow 
Right. Right. Because he falls farther and farther into that spot in our culture that people will come to just give themselves over to Mm -hmm. this thing. Right. Because he sees those visions of, of what he calls the jihad, you know, moving throughout his universe and he's at first like he's very afraid and he's trying to right. cause that thing to not happen because it's kind of horrible mm-hmm. and then he falls by the end of the book so far into like this role that he has kind of made for himself and other people have made for him the follow-up for you know frank herbert's critique of the messianic figure is that it's even more important to note like the people that follow that person blindly like that's the real problem and it yeah. is ultimately like there's a responsibility there of every person to to think about that. I remember seeing interviews from him from the seventies talking about Dune and like, like Steven said, the way he thinks about world leaders and how it's never really been more relevant even than today. I don't think even Frank Herbert could have anticipated our current political and socioeconomic situation that we have here with Mm -hmm. this kind of fanatic legion of our own, you know, depending on your political views of the idea of like blindly taking an individual, a charismatic leader at face value and just falling in line and step with them and doing whatever it is that they ask you as the Fremen do by the end of this book with Paul, mm-hmm. they're just, it's their zealots and their, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. their, uh, <laughs> religious warriors. It's the intersection of religion and politics as they harp on throughout the book. That is that dangerous place where like someone who is interwoven that powerful connection of politics and religion, they are like very, very dangerous and in their own minds, unstoppable. They're just and justified in their path. Yeah. I guess Paul is only the protagonist for the first two books, but it really shows the effect over the course of millennia that he has on the galaxy that they're in. Cause it's interstellar. There's multiple planets and houses basically like game of Thrones. It's like 10,000 years ahead, right? Yeah. And the more planets that these houses have, the further that their expansion of their lineage kind of stands. So the whole idea with the Dune series, I guess, is to show the complex workings of government and political systems and also to show the behavioral patterns of humans as a species, which is interesting because although Paul isn't all that sympathetic sometimes you come to understand where he's coming from and why he has become the leader that he has become and i think frank herbert writing this book studying behavioral patterns of people uh, and politicians and leaders was able to write in that this character is doing this thing that makes sense to him and the people around him even the planets around him races of people but doesn't make sense for all of these other people. And it's so fascinating to see people affecting people at the end of the day, both in a positive and a negative way. And it's almost like the whole series is a proclamation of how that's just kind of how humanity is and how it might continue to be in the future. And and that was sort of his constant projection of where will we end up, much like Foundation. The setting for that is the sort of the logical scientific projection of where we might be in the future and then trying to avoid that, or like Minority Report in that mm-hmm. way. Yeah. I think Frank Herbert constantly had that on his mind while he was writing this series and wanting to show humanity at its mm-hmm. core. Mm-hmm. I think their intention with the breeding process, as we can start to dig into the, the nomenclature, I think that was their intention with Paul, the people that essentially created Paul over you know centuries of special breeding, was that they wanted to create someone that could save humanity, right? Because right. these people, despite their methods and motives, anticipated essentially humanity's end, right? Because humanity is a destructive force that operates largely outside of nature and would eventually destroy itself. Mm -hmm. So Paul, I guess, was supposed to like fix that, you know, like lead them into a better direction, I think was their intention. It was always very elusive to me what the exact role of that person was in their own minds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And now things are going to get weird as we start to say these words. There's a lot of detail in this book. There's a whole glossary and And appendices dictionary of Hmm. terms and people. But I wrote down what I think are the most important terms that tell the story in a linear way that the book goes. So I'm going to shoot these terms at you guys and it should hopefully tell the story as we go. Hopefully. Just by (laughs) defining the terms and the shortest definition will make it onto the podcast. It's a vocab Mm. quiz. 
Okay. But I should start off also by saying, if you haven't put it together already, the setting, as we've said a few times, is a distant future, like almost 10,000 years in the future, where humanity rules the stars in a human empire. Very Warhammer. Yeah. (laughs) So I've written a list of terms from the Book of Dune. There's a lot more outside of this, but the logical path should be... The story. Yeah, coincide with what happens in the story chronologically. Ambitious. So I'm starting with the background of the setting of the Book of Dune with the term Balerian Jihad. <laughs> Go. <laughs> oh, God. Also known as the Great Revolt. The Butlerian Jihad. Everything's pretty fresh in my mind because I just finished the book literally an hour ago. Nice. And I went to the glossary so I can answer this one. The Butlerian Jihad is something that happened in the past of this universe that basically set the stage for these events, which it was a uh, kind of like the singularity. The ancient humans had advanced AI and technology that eventually, in a very Skynet way, perhaps you know gained its own sentience and then essentially waged war against humankind. I think the glossary tells that they like enslaved people for a time. And so eventually humanity was able to rebel and they abolished advanced technology in that way. But that's why there's no artificial intelligence in the world of Dune 10,000 years from now. Mm-hmm. It's because for a long time they've they have interesting spacefaring technology, but they don't have like computers. Yes, I'll add to this and say it forced humans to evolve because they they basically forbade for, yeah, forbid, it was forbidden. forbidden. They forbidden. They forbid. Forbid. They forbade. They for. Which one is <laughs> forbid? Right? Forbode. They forbade construction of any <laughs> machines in likeness of human minds. So everyone got together and was like, the technology is bad. You know, yeah, it was like a commandment in the yeah. new religion that, that you cannot create something in the image of man, like because that's what caused the terrible conflict in our past. And the implications is that this forced humans to evolve, becoming different kinds of people had sort of different roles according to how they like sort of quote unquote evolved becoming like biological computers like human computers or psychic witches or prescient space pilots that's kind of the (laughs) setting that we find ourselves in when the book of dune starts okay second term paul atreides the savior of man mankind he's the main character yep He's the guy. He's the, <laughs> he's the chosen one. Yes. He's the protagonist of the story. That's correct. The result of uh, generations of special breeding to create the one who could uh, bring everyone like into the next stage of human evolution. Because he had uh, like, yep. not really supernatural abilities, but kind of. He could see time space in his mind. And yes. he had those computational abilities that you talked about. New age prophet. Lady Jessica. Lady Jessica. She is the mistress the wife that's not a wife. She's the mom of Paul. That's probably the first thing I should have mentioned. And she is a part of the Bene Gesserit. What is the Bene Gesserit? That's the next term. Witches. <laughs> I will add an ancient cult of spice-assisted psychics called witches for their mysterious powers. They're the ones pulling the strings behind the scenes to guide humanity in this direction. Uh, that's literally almost verbatim the next mm, sentence. Nice. <gasps> I'm prescient. Yeah. I am the one. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say they have operated as a shadow government for centuries trying to guide humanity toward enlightenment. So the next term is Kwisatz Haderach. It's just their version of the chosen one. Who's there? Uh, primarily the Bene Gesserit order. It's the Bene Gesserit term. The product of the selective breeding that would be, as they say, the shortening of the way. Yes. And you would have those abilities. Duke Leto Atreides. Paul's dad. There you go. Papa, Papa, Papa Burgundy. Papa, Papa Atreides. <laughs> Gurney Halleck. Josh Brolin. Yeah. That's what I'm going to, I'm going to just start naming the, <laughs> the actual Gurney Halleck. I think he's described as an ugly lump of a man but he is uh, a trusted advisor and fighter yep. for the Atreides clan, and he's a bit of a mentor to Paul. It's a great answer. That's the kind of answer I want. Uh, well, we'll Duncan Idaho. <laughs> he's a loose cannon. Jason Momoa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Duncan Idaho. Also a fighter. Known to be one of the best. Yeah, one of the best. He's another, like, uh, they call him the lieutenants of the very, like, inner circle of the Duke. Yeah, and Duke Leto kind of foreseeing trouble moving planets he sends duncan idaho ahead to kind of scout for him through fear hawat do you know scott i mean the next term after this is mentat oh a hint so you could define them both at once how charitable go go for it (laughs) thufir is uh the duke's mentat (laughs) (laughs) 
what is <laughs> what is Menta? They're the human supercomputers that mm-hmm. had to come to be because they don't have regular computers. And they use, um, I don't know exactly how much spice they use, but they use another substance that I can't remember what it's called. But they're the ones who can like make crazy computations in their minds. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're usually like heads of strategy or war because they can plan very quickly and easily. Uh, Caladan. The, the uh, home planet. Or yeah. the planet we start learning of the Atreides. Mm-hmm. What kind of planet is it, Scott? Lush. Lush. That's Water. the perfect word, actually. Water everywhere. Yeah. Wet. <laughs> <laughs> Moist. Moist. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it if you were. <laughs> I guess we pick up like a week before they have to leave Caladan. Why do they have to leave, Stephen? Before we get to that point, the next term is Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. Ooh. Or Harkonnen, depending on if you're an idiot. Joking, by the way. (laughs) There are many interpretations. Yeah, there's a lot of different pronunciations of these terms. I'm saying it how I heard it via the Audible book that I listened to. Mm, That's a pretty good source. Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. He's the bad guy. Yep, antagonist. How would you describe the Baron, Scott? Gross. (laughs) Yeah, gross. Very large. Gluttonous. He has to use suspensors to help him get around. What are suspensors, Gabe? They're like little anti-gravity things. Imagine Jabba the Hutt, but he's floating thanks to little, like, uh, projectors underneath him. The Harkonnens are the sworn enemies of the Atreides clan. Mm-hmm. Rival clans, mm. but from, like, a bloody perspective. Like Starks and Lannisters? Huh. Petir de Vries. That is the Baron's Mentat. Yes, the Baron's Mentat. He's described as to be very... Uh, kind of, like, corrupt. Like he's played by the Machian. The guy from The Dark Knight who Harvey Dent interrogated. And then he also oh. plays the polka dot man in the new yes, Suicide that's, Squad that's movie. a better, more recent reference. I'm excited to see him in that role. He's like a dark, twisted Mentat, because yeah. he, he's like a bad Mentat. He's Twentat. <laughs> he's Bentat. <laughs> okay, so the next term this could honestly have the shortest answer arrakis dune <laughs> nailed it <laughs> also known as desert planet <laughs> yep that's true and is the planet dune arrakis spice melange is the next term melange it's what they call the spice it's like its other name what is the spice spice is the substance like cinnamon it's used throughout the galaxy (laughs) it's uh, a drug that gives you many abilities that some would consider to be unnatural (laughs) spice is not just used in food but it extends human life heightens awareness and can open prescient view unnatural (laughs) uh parisha emperor also known as shaddam the fourth aka palpatine 1.0 the original actually yeah yeah. He came first. He's the head of the Imperium. Mm-hmm. He's the guy that's in charge. And what did he do to set everything in motion? He sent House Atreides to take over Dune, mm-hmm. aka Arrakis. From the Harkonnens. From the Harkonnens. The sworn enemies. That could ultimately be a, a suicide mission. Suicide mission. The Duke mm-hmm. couldn't refuse out of honor. He's like yeah. Ned Stark. Another Game of Thrones reference. Nice. <laughs> so the next term <laughs> is Sardaukar. I love that on my hot dog. <laughs> Sardaukar. <laughs> Sardaukar. These are actually one of the most interesting aspects to me personally. Why don't you answer it? Yeah. So the Sardaukar are the Parisha Emperor's army. They're from the House Carino. So is the Emperor. They're raised to be these epic fighters who are just ruthless and have no mercy. They're raised from infancy, from the moment they're born. And set out of like every 12 fighters, like six of them survive, like and the other ones just die because they're raised in this hellish environment. Their home planet that they're from is just like super hellish. Salusa Secundus. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I almost put that in, but I didn't. But that's the home planet that they're from. They're raised to just be these insane fighters. And they also are large in numbers because of that. And it contrasts in such an interesting way the native people on Arrakis, the planet Dune, because they're also raised in a harsh environment and underestimated in their militaristic value. I think a point was made, it might have been more figurative, that they shared common ancestry. Yeah, I think so. And also, I should say that at this point, one of the reasons that the Emperor wanted Duke Leto Atreides and the Atreides clan to leave their home planet, basically on a death mission to Arrakis, was because he felt threatened about the size of his army rivaling his own army, the Sardaukar army. Anyway, Dr. Yui, Dr. Yue. Yue. He's the betrayer. The one who betrays. A thousand deaths are not enough for Yue. He's trained with the... uh, 
the imperial conditioning. The conditioning. Of the Souk school. He's like uh, the house doctor for the Atreides that ended up betraying them, but no one could have anticipated it because the imperial conditioning is supposed to, to like make you... You cannot take a life is, is the baseline of it, so no one thinks you can turn or cause a, a Souk school graduate to turn. And who broke his conditioning? Uh, the Baron. Hunter Seeker. The uh, Hunter Seeker is like a floating needle that kills you. Mm-hmm. Was sent to assassinate Paul, right? Mm-hmm. And because of that assassination attempt, ultimately by Doctor Yue, yeah. that kind of sparks everything into motion. And this next one, it's not even a term, but it is a phrase I had to throw in to continue the story. Remember the tooth. Remember mm-hmm. the tooth. The tooth. What is that about? <laughs> is it the suicide? Yeah, it's like a cyanide the, yeah. pill. Yeah, Doctor Yui basically shoots Leto with like right. a, a knockout drug. Yeah, and then he replaces one of his teeth with like a tooth capsule that has poison in it to assassinate the Baron. His final act of revenge. Because mm-hmm. Yui also doesn't like the Baron. Because mm-hmm. he had his wife. That's why he turned. That's how you break imperial conditioning is you just capture someone's loved one, apparently. What an easy way. Right? It's so Mm -hmm. easy. Anyone could do it. And so (laughs) the Duke remembers the tooth. (laughs) Thank God. And and pops it and kills everyone in the room, but the Baron escapes. But the house of Atreides falls, the Duke dies, and then Paul and his mama, Jessica, (laughs) go on the run, which I will throw in the term the voice. This is how they escape, by using the voice. The voice is a manner of speaking, like a tool or a weapon from the Bene Gesserit that... Witches. The way they describe it in the book is through complete tonal control that cuts through to the individual you're speaking to, typically. So it's very precise to your audience, wherein when you speak, you can control that person's actions. So, for instance, you could tell them to sit down or to run away or to free you. Mm-hmm. And they would have, they would feel so completely compelled to follow the order. Mm-hmm. It is like a strange blend between mysticism and like something that, you know, might be loosely grounded in reality. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's not overtly uh, supernatural, but yeah, they can do that. <laughs> and Dr. Yui, because he helps them escape, leaves a couple still suits behind. What are still suits? They're suits that allow you to survive in the harsh deserts of Dune or Arrakis. But how? They're skin-tight suits that dissipate heat and recycle moisture. (gasps) Can you poop in them? Does that answer that question? Yeah, you can. You poop and pee in your suit. (gasps) You can poop in your suit? You can take a big steamy dump (laughs) in your suit and the suit will... I don't know exactly how (laughs) it does that, but they do say you can... You do that. You're not going to take your suit off in the desert. You die. It's true. And so you obviously will get a, probably less moisture out of that than your sweat, but you... Uh, you can poop in your suit. You poop in the suit. <laughs> I find that that's maybe the out of everything science fiction <laughs> in this book, that's maybe the most far-fetched. Uh, sandworm. One of you talking about sandworms. Shia-lude. They're the... The big worms in the sand. How big? Massive. Massive. Building size. Some of the bigger specimens they find, I think they say are like 400 meters, but that's not even the ones that are in the deep desert mm-hmm. where they're said to be even bigger. Like I think Paul at one point says leagues wide. The one that he called was like the biggest one he'd ever seen or heard of towards the end of the book where he finally rides one. The one that he rode on. They're absolutely immense. Mm-hmm. Fremen. The locals of Dune. They are the people, the followers of Paul, and they're the locals. Specifically the dunes, like the desert parts, because right. there are other people that live on the planet. Yeah, there in are. In the cities, but the Fremen are like hidden away in the uninhabitable parts of Arrakis, and no one really knows how many there are ever, yeah. Yeah, but true. it's estimated by Thufir, I think, by the end, that there are like tens of millions of them potentially out there. Yeah, these are the people that are the native to the planet that live in the outer places that the Duke Leto saw as, uh, I think he called it desert power. Yeah, how to harness the available resources of the planet yeah. because the Fremen are apparently like super OP. Yeah. And even better at fighting than the Sardaukar. Which is why he sent Duncan Idaho to try to like talk to them. And he met someone named Stilgar. It's Javier Bardem. <laughs> Who's Stilgar? <laughs> He's one of the Fremen. He's uh, the leader of the local community. Yeah. It's your friendly neighborhood governor. Yeah. Siege Tabir. He's the leader of that, which I think that siege in itself has like 10,000 people. Liet Kynes. 
he calls himself the planetologist. He's right. the ecologist for Arrakis sent by the Imperium to basically just kind of study the planet. But he has a special vision for it that he inherited from his father. And they ingratiated themselves amongst the Freemen and basically became Freemen. Their vision is to transform Dune into a paradise world. Partially, because that would, if they did it entirely, destroy spice production and the mysterious means for which that occurs. Mm-hmm. But they want to transform and, you know, turn Arrakis into that lush world that people can live on comfortably, as opposed to barely getting by. And who is Cheney? The daughter of Liet Kine. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and who does she fall in love with? Paul Atreides. <laughs> <laughs> and who is she played by in the new movie? <gasps> Zendaya. Jameis. Who is Jameis? And why is he important to the story? He is part of Stilgar's band. He is a Fremen that challenges Paul because he was pretty unhappy that Paul kind of kicked his ass when they first met. And in through that challenging and his subsequent death in the duel, that's what allows people to see like Paul is uh, possibly the guy that we've been told yeah. that our people have been waiting for. Moadib. Moadib. It's Paul, the leader of the Fremen. End all be all. It's the Fremen term for mouse. Mm. The one who points the way. Embodies wisdom. Water of life. Why is it important to the story? In particular with Jessica. I'll keep this one brief. It's poison that she drinks. She converts it to a safe drug for the whole family. And then everyone has some and there's an orgy. And what does she become? <laughs> what does she become for the Fremen? The Reverend Mother. Yes. And can there be multiple Reverend Mothers from the Bene Gesserit? I don't know. Yes, there can. Well, it's funny because the Fremen like developed their own system of yeah. Reverend Mother. Yeah. Alia Atreides. Best character. Paul's sister. <laughs> Nailed it. Uh, who is Paul's sister? <laughs> For 500. <laughs> <laughs> Jessica was pregnant with Duke Leto's child when she went on the run into the desert and uh, ended up having a big whoopsie. A young Bene Gesserit daughter named Alia and she's very young about two or three when we find her again and she speaks like an adult super crazy why is that because she has all the memories of everyone that came before her holy shit. what do you mean she's a grown adult woman in a three-year-old's body <laughs> <laughs> um and she uses something called the gamjabar to kill the baron vladimir what is the gamjabar the high-handed enemy it's a special poison used by the Bene Gesserit in their experiment to discover, to delineate people from animals, as they say. Mm-hmm. It's just a little needle with some special poison that I think in the glossary basically said it's a form of cyanide. It just instantly kills you, kind of painfully, but instantly. Yeah. And then Paul and a bunch of Fremen storm the castle, Erekane, under the guise of like a huge sandstorm. The final battle. And then he confronts the emperor and he's like, Bro. This is actually a really interesting part of the book because I loved how there wasn't like a huge showdown. He didn't try to overthrow the emperor. He just tried to logicize his way around him. But he called out the Harkonnen in the group, Fade Ratha, and then who is Fade Ratha? Sting. <laughs> Sorry. In in Lynch's Dune, this guy is played by Sting. Yeah. Oh. Yes. It's incredible. Nice. But why is Fade Ratha important at this part and who is he? He's the nephew of the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. It's another result of a long line of specialty breeding. Yeah. He's kind of like a foil for Paul in a few ways. And then they fight and he gets wrecked. Well, actually, he almost kills Paul. Yeah, but second place is the first loser. (laughs) (laughs) And then this is the final thing, because this is how the book ends, but who is Princess Irulan? The daughter to the emperor. Mm Mm-hmm. Who is she throughout the whole book of Dune? Why does the book end here? There are little excerpts at the beginning of every chapter of Dune. Most of them are by Princess Erelon from in-universe future texts, uh, talking about the events of Dune, giving some context and some insights into the things that are happening. And then by the end of the book story, she's the person that Paul intends to marry to, not just in the conflict, but to uh, be his door into the imperial throne and become god of the universe (laughs) you know legally she takes his name of atreides and he still basically commits to cheney and being like you'll be my great love but i'll be married to her and i will give her nothing yeah that was pretty epic so she gets my name but you're my concubine yeah and she was also Bene Gesserit trained oh that's right yeah Mm -hmm. supposed to be very pretty well that's the book of dune yeah an epic saga the first book so it really sets the stage for the rest of his story yeah Mm -hmm. So Paul 
really out of his element, but also spent his whole life training for this event. His father dies. He's in a place he is very unknown to him. He has this moment of he becomes self-aware, mm. and he, he basically becomes an adult in the course of minutes, like in his mind, and then ends up leading the native people to take back their planet. And uh, that kind of is the hero's journey in of itself. But I found those moments very interesting because he's sort of this reluctant but also curious protagonist. He's not like Luke Skywalker who's like, I want to go fly, <laughs> the pilot, like that kind of thing. It's it's more like, well, I'm Pratt's with my T-16 back home. Yeah. This is more like reluctant <laughs> and every step of the way he is having to accept his fate. I thought that was super interesting. Paul's curious, especially compared to someone like Luke, because he's always been precocious. Mm-hmm. Whereas Luke, technically, I think Luke's a much more interesting character because he's not like God. <laughs> right. Paul is someone who was born as a result of greatness. Like, so he's born great and he's like shaped into something that is, you know, the Messiah. So Paul's an interesting character in his own right, but he's, he's very different than, you know, your typical hero's journey where... I mean, he still follows like the the pattern, but he starts out in a precocious place, which is, it's different. Yeah. It's interesting. The most interesting part of that to me is how like he, he just basically came in to fulfill a role. Like the Fremen were seated and the idea was planted in them for such a long time to expect this figure, mm. these prophetic tellings mm-hmm. and expectations. Mm-hmm. And then he just kind of like rolled in there and they were ripe for the taking. The Fremen were like, yeah, this is the one we've been waiting for mm-hmm. it's interesting there's a lot to take from that but yeah i mean societally it is interesting because i think just as a culture even the ones we find ourselves in now which is like you know over 45 years later that after this book was written i think culturally we're told these stories of how to be how to move forward in our lives both socially and individually for example it'd be like we're always told, you know, the path to having a happy life is going to college. And to go to college, you have to go through all of this other school first. And then you get a degree and then you get a job and then you have the house and, the you know, you have some sort of stability that you can function as an adult with. You know, we're told sort of those narratives. And I found myself finding a lot of those parallels here in this book. A lot of this book philosophically is about the narratives that these people are told and how... These people are raised with their family of origin and how that plays into their decision-making and the Fremen believing this idea that this savior is going to come is one of those narratives. The narrative that Paul has told his whole life is one of them and Quitsat's Haderach and how that even the idea of that was like he couldn't know that he was the Quitsat's Haderach until he was old enough to know it. But Paul had to basically learn that he was that even though he knew that term his whole life. And then he had to accept that he was that. Just, it is very interesting, that idea. And I think that was something that Frank Herbert really wanted to get across as far as his idea, as far as like we grow up and we move forward in these ways where we are guided by these political and governmental systems that kind of reinforce those ideas about how to be, like how to just exist. The system. And also like what our inalienable human rights are, like what we have just being a person and what rights do we have just to exist, like that kind of thing. Very heavy. All of those ideas are being presented here. You know, those challenging base human rights are a lot of the ideas I think that Frank Herbert is bringing up in this, at least this first book. What do you think about that, Scott? It's a lot to unpack. (laughs) No, I mean, I, I agree. I think the book was fantastic from a philosophical standpoint. I feel like Herbert was better at discussing things and having grand ideas than he was at storytelling per se Mm. from a a reader's perspective. And this is less on the philosophical side, more on just back to the book and the basics of it. As a reader, I was drawn in more to his ideas, less the story, if that would make sense. What were some of the ideas that like fascinated you most? Well, just his, his world building. You know, again, from a world building perspective, it just was one of the first books I had read that was obviously fiction that allowed you to explore the idea of each world very vividly Mm -hmm. um, through his words. Realistically, I wasn't drawn in until they got to Arrakis Mm -hmm. and Dune. And once you're on Dune, I couldn't put it down up until the very end. And I know that's kind of a general feeling with a lot of people's first read through is that the beginning of it is a little slower 
Mm-hmm. There's still a lot of really good world building, even in the first chapter alone. Mm-hmm. That just makes you fascinated and interested in what's to come. But it isn't until you get to Dune, for me, where the story of what it is takes off to a point that you just kind of can't stop reading. But you're right. I mean, from your perspective on Paul and kind of his ideals that he has to go and explore and understand and learn who he is, it does a a very good job of painting that picture. And even the whole period of of when he comes into knowing and the Fremen, I, it was a, a worm. He basically drank. That's the water. Why? Yeah. yeah. That whole portion of the book was extremely confusing the first time <laughs> yeah. I read through it's, it, and I had to reread <laughs> it several times. It's pretty abstract. It's very abstract. When he gets into the stuff of the mind, like the the psychoanalytic and the where Paul's like jumping around time space, and yeah. he describes like the future and the past and the present and, and the interwoven nature of it. And how he can explore those branching paths mm-hmm, in his mm-hmm, mind mm-hmm. in an instant. Yep. It, sometimes Frank Herbert will go on for pages just talking about that process, and it's pretty. Some occasionally, uh, it's always abstract. It's occasionally obtuse, even. Mm-hmm. And I'll have to I find myself going back and trying to reread just to really, like I said before, digest what I'm reading. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he does that in different ways. But I I love those passages because, like you said, it is a great example of like world building. And Frank Herbert really cares about all the little details of his universe. I mean, it just goes to show through like how he wrote multiple appendices, you know, he mm-hmm. included a glossary in his novel because he wants you to be immersed and to live in this place that he's created. And in that way, to take away everything from his story, whether it be like you said, the history and the anthropology of humankind mm-hmm. that informs like mm-hmm. the narrative or like his commentary on religion or politics, or even just to spend some time writing poetry there's so mm-hmm. much poetry in this book mm-hmm. both literally and figuratively and i think brian herbert even said like sometimes his father would write in poetry and then just convert it to prose later on and mm-hmm. that's how his descriptive imagery would hmm. would come about that's how that he liked to write was just to be descriptive yeah is science fiction really fiction or is it just the future waiting to happen author frank herbert says it's a little bit of both his books under the dune title takes us to a strange planet where life and death is determined by a spice, which is carefully doled out by a leader who is a humanoid and the process of becoming a worm. Now, before I I ask you about the statement of that, Frank, (laughs) why is there a tendency for people to chuckle when they hear what I just just said, to sneer, to smirk? Uh, I think it, it, it makes people uncomfortable, the idea that a human being can become something other than a human being, especially something mindless out of the depths. Uh, I'm very heavily imbued with Jungian psychology, so I think that we do have a sense of the mindless animal in the depths of all of us. But science fiction, when people say science fiction, they automatically go, ah. Yeah, but I write science fiction for people who don't read science fiction. And people who read science fiction also. You've said science fiction writing can have a missionary impact. Could you elaborate on that for me a little bit? Well, I think it first has to be entertaining, because if it's not entertaining, nobody's going to read it. I put a, a pot of message in there with a mess of pottage. <laughs> what, is, what is the message? What is the statement that you're attempting to make here? Uh, don't trust leaders to always be right. I, I worked to create a leader in this book who would be really an attractive, charismatic person for all the good reasons, not for any bad reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, then power comes to him. He makes decisions. Some of his decisions made for millions of people, millions upon millions of people, don't work out too well. Our society was formed on a distrust for government, and uh, uh, we seem to have lost that distrust of government. I kid around and I say that uh, my favorite president in recent years has been Richard Nixon, because he taught us to distrust government. <laughs> what is it, that government is, is a shared illusion, and when the myth dies, oh, yes. the, the, myth the dies, government the, disappears? That's right. Final thoughts. I could say my favorite thing about the book, probably... Uh, is just, I mean, aside from everything else that we've kind of talked about, is the, uh, there's a lot of commentary on mindfulness and um, consciousness and like, and present, being present in the moment. It's like one of the secrets that these people, even outside of the spice, they've trained themselves in this universe. Some of these, you know, individuals, like the Bene Gesserit, for instance, Lady Jessica, mm-hmm. and she trains Paul in this way to be uh, extremely mindful. And that's the source of a lot of their 
powers, which is fascinating to read because it just basically most of their abilities that people consider mystical are just a heightened sense of awareness and observation. Mm-hmm. It's like an episode of Psych where Sean Spencer is just like paying attention to things and people think he's a psychic because he sells it so well. Mm. For someone who doesn't spend a lot of time present in the moment, speaking of myself and being mindful of that because I love you know disassociating and escaping into fiction, it's really uh, it's interesting and not just compelling, but almost like inspiring to like see mm. how that's like part of the wisdom for me. The takeaway from the book is that practice of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. I had a note here as I was reading. It was the first note I made. and I didn't make many. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the control of oneself through the mind and body, but also like that aspect of critical thinking, which is something Frank Herbert was really trying to harp on. I think I mentioned earlier when we're talking about like the response of the masses to the, the messianic figure. How it's like a call to action for everybody, for every man himself to engage with not just his novel, but like with his own world and how that spills into everything from those like socio-political interactions, but also like with the real world. Like this book first and foremost came from his environmental curiosities and his ecological interests Yeah, to be like, you know, we have to take care of that land that we've been handed like our own planet earth as it's in its modern age kind of burning out you could say with everything from climate change to whatnot we're on a bit of a timetable and uh it's fascinating to me to see a piece of literature basically like and this happens a lot with literature but break down like current events Mm -hmm. and show them through a you know another lens sure it's uncanny like some of the parallels and so it's inspiring to try to like take back control of one's life in that way to, to try to be mindful and present and think critically about the world around you. And mm-hmm. that's all I have to say about that. <laughs> I loved what you said, mindfulness, just from a, even a personal perspective. The book for me ultimately led me down a path of just kind of considering the what ifs of our current world. You know, I read it during COVID, so it was especially strange to read it during that time where we were amidst the lockdown to the extent that we locked down where we're at in Orange County. But uh, it was still fascinating to read the political environment that was going on within Dune versus the semi-political parallel in our current world. Just having gone through COVID itself, the lockdown, the political nightmare of everything that had to occur then, not even speaking just in the U.S. and globally, the types of politics that just went on and seeing so many parallels of sabotage and political distrust and propaganda (laughs) propaganda yeah everything that came with it it was just it was fascinating and and also terrifying at the same time so for me the point at which i read it was um coincided well with parallels of current events and like you spoke on climate change and just the inevitable timeline that we appear to be on um yeah A bit of our own jihad. Yeah, realistically. (laughs) On the precipice of terrible things, you know, happening in the world or things that are happening in Uh the world all over, not just, you know, in the Western world. Yeah, and uh, that's what I think is fascinating about the book is that, like you guys have said several times now, 45 years ago, for it to tell such a drastic change in, in an environment that at the time probably was not totally foreseeable in terms of near future and for it to be 45 years on and obviously we don't have the levels of space travel and and spice and (laughs) giant worms but you know the political side and the philosophical side are just so paralleled i guess is the best way i can describe it Mm -hmm. it's extremely compelling for that reason god willing we make it to see our own worms one day yeah and have our own spice and fly our own interstellar ships I mean, I agree. One of the most interesting parts for me was kind of researching Frank Herbert a little bit after finishing the book. And there's one interview where he talks about the future of fossil fuels and how we need to find a renewable source of energy instead of non-renewable source. And that's now. (laughs) And so, you know, you just saying all that is like literally exactly what he was saying Mm -hmm. 40 years ago. I mean, people like digging back into the 20th century, they've been projecting things like this, but But he was saying this and he was, this is something that he was concerned with when he was writing the series, which is really fascinating. But ultimately, I mean, from a purely science fiction standpoint, you know, I loved the lore. Mm -hmm. I loved learning everything and getting immersed in it and in anticipating hearing more. I, w- I can't say reading more because I was listening to it, but I really enjoyed learning as much as I could about the world. And so that whole part has been fun just as it's always fun to get immersed in any intellectual property, science fiction, intellectual property. But yeah, the best part about it, I think, has been 
I love, I, the thing I love most is like learning about the creators and uh, their motivations for why they did what they did and why they wrote what they wrote. So that part has been super fun for me as well, even though it's sort of scary. <laughs> yeah. Especially for someone with such an influential reach. Dune, we've said many times now, has been one of the hallmarks of 20th century literature, at least in science fiction. And uh, anytime you look at that man behind an incredibly influential property, you're curious like about the character of that man. Mm-hmm. And it's it's true that every part of this book was from the mind of Frank Herbert and mm-hmm. speaks to not only his character, but his concern for all of that. Yeah. So wish he could be here now. Yeah, I would love to hear what he would have to say about Denny Villeneuve's interpretation of uh, his book. I am super interested to see where the movie goes. It's the first time for me personally, that I've read a book before I've seen a movie. Oh, really? But even before reading the book, I had no idea there were two other adaptations of Dune previously. Yeah, it'll be it'll be cool to see that. I think uh, he'll have to make a few changes, as David Lynch did. Right. Um, but I'm excited to see what he does, and I think Denny will do it well. Yeah, I know he died in 86. I'm curious what he thought about David Lynch's Dune. Hmm. I know that was the thing that put, once again, I think that came out at around the time his third or fourth book came out, and it launched his franchise back to number one bestseller. Wow. At least in the States for a time. Yeah. It was a very interesting movie. Yeah. But it permeated the cultural like zeitgeist. Yeah. And still even now, you mm-hmm. know, it has this. And it came out a year after Return of the Jedi. It's interesting. His movie, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. But to write something like this in 65, like you said, it's crazy. Yeah. It is crazy. Ahead of its time. But yeah, that is the Book of Dune. You can check out Dune 2, Dune Messiah, part two of however many there are. I think six books that are the main series of the story that he was trying to tell before. It got even crazier, and I think... That's when he passed away. Even his son is continuing to write stuff. But we are anticipating the film and are very excited. I haven't been this excited since the last Denny film, I think. (laughs) Yeah, they are very much something to anticipate and be excited about because they are tone just pure tone. Yeah, I hope it does well to warrant a sequel. Warner Brothers is really waiting on it to see, mm-hmm. uh, especially because... It's releasing simultaneously online yeah. on HBO Max. Well, it also yeah. came out a, a month ago in Europe. So. Oh, that's right. I forgot. But, like, the only criticism I've heard so far is as to, like, the fact that it ends on... Not really a cliffhanger, but, like, it's only the first half of the story. Right. Which is that it's going to be big blue balls for a lot of the readers. <laughs> hunger of mind and body never satiated not even with handfuls of goldfish if i was back in my office i'd for sure have a box goldfish with me would you prefer goldfish over cheez-its yes really yes there's Alan and i had this debate last night it's an ongoing debate amongst the intellectuals of our time it is a very very split debate an even split pretty damn close if i remember right there was <laughs> 16 of us at that night and it was eight on eight i think honestly now that i'm thinking about it i think i would take cheez-its but i really like the white cheddar Cheez-Its. But baseline, you would take Cheez-Its over goldfish? Pound for pound. I think so. But for the record, I'm a a Cheez-It man myself. So no love lost, Scott.